It's good to be gathered here this evening that we can uh, continue to make progress here through the book of Proverbs. And so if you would please uh, turn to Proverbs chapter 20. And this evening's message comes to us from Proverbs chapter 20, verses 14 through 19. (coughs) So Proverbs chapter 20. And uh, we will read verses 14 through 19. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word, beginning in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 14. Hear now the word of God. Bad, bad, says the buyer, but when he goes away, then he boasts. There is gold and abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. Take a man's garment when he has put up security for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he puts up security for foreigners. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. Plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance, uh, wage war. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a simple babbler." May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we rejoice that you are the sovereign creator of all that is. You are one who is omnipotent, who is holy, who is righteous, and who is just. Indeed, you are far too great for us, and yet... In your mercy and in your kindness, you condescend to us, and you speak unto us as a father unto his children. So we pray, O Lord, that you would instruct us, that you would turn us from our wayward paths, that you would turn our hearts unto the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give unto us wisdom through the outpouring of your spirit and your word, and that you would further conform us to the image of your Son, that we too might be your holy, obedient, and righteous children. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. I can remember a number of years ago uh, where the wife and I were traveling in Beijing, China, and uh, our host, uh, or I sometimes refer to him as our handler because he would kind of direct us from place to place, he took us uh, to this uh, I guess it's a fairly well-known Chinese market. And it was a market that was in, I don't know, a three- or four-story building. And as you went in, you could start at the ground floor, and then you would make your way up all the way to the top of this market. Uh, And in the market, there were various stalls. Okay, so it wasn't necessarily your Persian bazaar, but it's what I would imagine would be very similar to it. And so as we made our way past the various stalls, our handler at the time said, listen, you're going to get accosted. And, you know, I'm maybe exaggerating a little bit, but you're going to be, you know, have the the, the sellers, they're going to be yelling at you to come by their stall. They're going to be holding up items. They're going to want you to buy them. And whatever you want to buy, that's fine. That's not a problem. But I would advise you, and he said something to this effect, that don't pay for anything unless you're, it's going to be about half of what they're asking for. Don't pay for it unless you pay about half of it, because the, the asking price for most of this stuff in here is really, you know, grossly uh, overpriced. It's just really overpriced. Now, 
you, as you think about that and as we think about that, that whole scene, we could say that maybe that's just the way of haggling. What happens, and maybe we do all of this to a certain extent, is you say, well, I really want to get $50 for this item, so I'm going to list it for 100 uh, and that way, when we whittle the person, or when the person kind of whittles down and negotiates, uh, maybe I'll work my way all the way down to 50, but I finally get the price that I really want. All right? Uh, you know, so the, the, the people give a high price. The seller puts an item at a high value, knowing that he's going to come down, but it gives the buyer the impression that the buyer is getting for something less than retail. Okay? Uh, when he significantly marks it down and he says, you're getting a great deal. You know, so the buyer feels good. I'm not paying full price. The seller feels good because, hey, I'm getting my, the, the, the price that I really want. Now, at the same time, there's a whole other side to this story. The buyer knows that the seller has inflated his price. And so in his effort to get the price down, he's going to say, well, you know what? I don't know that I want to buy it here. I think I can get it cheaper elsewhere. Now, or another thing that the buyer might say is, you know what? This product is no good. It's not worth my time. It's not worth my money. I think I'll move on. Now, when I was negotiating with some of these vendors, I never did this. My wife was an old pro. She's a great negotiator. I'm a terrible negotiator. Uh, but when I went in there, I thought, I'll play this like a game. I'll have some fun. And so they, you know, these are just sample prices, but they say, you know, how much is this? They say, it's $50. And I say, okay, I'll give you 25. No, no, no. How about 45? And then I'd say, okay, how about 20? And I would drive my price even lower. So then I would say, you know what? I'm not interested. I'm going to walk away. Then they'd kind of chase me down the aisle and they say, tell you what? Uh, okay, I'll have about 30. I say, okay, fine, that's, 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 that's a price I'm willing to pay. So we had fun that day in the market. We, we had fun. And it's because it was unlike any kind of purchasing uh, type of experience that I had ever experienced. Uh, you know, it's not every day that you roll on up to the Dillard's and you tell the clerk as you walk into the store, I tell you what, I'll give you half. You know, they would say, uh, get out of here. <laughs> I'm not interested in, in you trying to negotiate, right? Well, this is actually a slice of the world into which Solomon takes us here into this, in, in this passage before us. He takes us into the marketplace. He takes us into the, the Persian bazaar, if you will. He takes us into the place of business. And he says that even in this place of life, there's a need for wisdom. Now, it's not just simply a question of do I want to get something for a good price or do I want to be wise in how I sell things. In other words, there's a moral dimension even to the way that we haggle for things is what Solomon says. You know, I could state this a little bit more precisely and I could put it this way in that what Solomon is saying is that there is no patch of life that is exempt from the holiness of God. There is no patch of life that is exempt from the demands of sanctity and the holiness of Christ. We cannot say, Lord, I give you all of my life except for this little part over here where I'm going to conduct business how the rest of the world conducts business. Not so. Uh, and so what Solomon is ultimately saying here is he's talking about an all-pervasive wisdom, an all-pervasive righteousness that permeates into every single nook and cranny of our lives. And in this particular case, even the way that we haggle for things. 
And so what I want us to do is we'll first look at the market and see what Solomon has to say about the market. Imagine if you were, if we were walking with Solomon as we would go through the markets of Israel and he would start pointing things out. That's, that's where we want to go first. Then secondly, we want to take a look at what Solomon has to say about the way that we conduct business. Not just simply about the way that we, uh, you know, look to purchase things, but also are we interested in the quick buck? Are we interested in earning a fast dollar rather than conducting ourselves in a wise and righteous manner? And then third and finally, we want to see what Solomon has to say more broadly about life in general and how the wisdom of Christ should pervade in every single corner of our lives. All right, so let's look at the market. You know, first Solomon turns our attention to what we can say is a lively scene, if you will, from a Middle Eastern market where you might see and hear the hustle and the bustle and the banter going back and forth as people barter and negotiate. And we read there in verse 14, you can hear the buyer saying, bad, bad, says the buyer. But when he goes away, he then boasts. He then boasts. So Solomon's statement, we can almost say, conveys a certain comical sense as to what's going on here in the market. And perhaps it's even something that we've witnessed before. In the effort for the seller, or to get the seller to lower his price, the buyer says, look, this isn't really that good. You know, when it comes down to it, this thing's a piece of junk. I'm helping you by taking it off your hands. It's not worth $100. It's barely even worth five bucks. I'll give you five bucks for it. It's terrible. It's horrible. But then as soon as the buyer, after he said, this thing is horrible, he walks away and he boasts thinking, look at the fantastic bargain that I got. I drove the price down because I was a hard negotiator. Now, the converse might also be true for the seller. If the seller has artificially inflated his price on what is otherwise a mediocre product, then he too might go away boasting because he knows that he's sold something for more than it's actually worth. Huh, that guy paid five bucks for that thing. What he doesn't know, it's not even worth 250, right? Now, this isn't something that's simply ordinary business. We might just say, hey, that's just business. That's just negotiating. That's just haggling. But there's a moral dimension to this. There's a moral dimension to this. There's a sense in which I think we can say there's a moral dimension to everything that we do in life. And that what Solomon is pointing out is both the buyer and possibly the seller are engaged in deception. The buyer is lying when he says, this thing is terrible, bad, bad, says the buyer. Because in truth, he really wants it. Because if it really was truly bad, he wouldn't buy it to begin with. But he's using deception as a negotiating tool. Conversely, we might say that there's another side to this proverb, that the seller might actually know how terrible the product is, but he inflates the price to make the buyer think that it's actually better than it is. Now, to be sure, we want to put this type of deception in the proper context of the overall book of Proverbs. This form of deception is not on the same level as other forms of deception. Remember, for example, when Jezebel 
contrived a plan to steal Naboth's vineyard uh, for King Ahab. She hired two worthless men, the scriptures tell us, to lie and to bring false charges against Naboth, saying that he had cursed the king, which was patently and fundamentally false. That type of deception is abhorrent. But at the same time, we don't want to say that, well, this kind of lie is a terrible lie. This kind of lie is okay. What Solomon is trying to get us to see is that regardless of the degree of the lie, a lie is still a lie. It's still a lie. And so what he's saying here is he's saying that we need wisdom, we need righteousness, we need holiness, even for some of the most seemingly ordinary things, like going into the market and negotiating. You know, we might ask, how extensive does my holiness have to be? How far into what corners of my life is it supposed to reach? Is godliness and truthfulness only something that we reserve for the big things in life? Well, it's just a small lie on my taxes. It's just a small lie in this negotiation. But I'll tell the truth when it comes to like, did you kill this person? Well, no, I didn't. You know, did you, did you rob this bank? No, I didn't. So we reserve the truth for the big things, but for the small things, we say, well, that's okay if I, if I tell a little white lie. Let me put it this way. How much sin should we knowingly tolerate in our lives? I think that's the question that Solomon wants to think about. You know, we all commit sins of omission or ignorance when we don't realize what we're doing. But here the buyer deliberately belittles the desired product. He lies in order to get his price, and then he boasts about the means and the fruit of his deception. Look how I fooled that vendor. Now notice what Solomon does not say here. Solomon does not say, therefore, son, don't ever negotiate. Don't ever haggle. He's not saying don't go to the market, don't negotiate, and don't haggle. Rather, he's saying there's a godly way to go about it. Think, for example, of Abraham's negotiating with God over the destruction of Sodom. When Abraham said, but God, what what if there are 50 righteous men? Will you not, will you still destroy it? Okay, I will not destroy it if there are 50 men. Oh, Lord, I don't want to try your patience, but, uh, you know, but what if there are 40 godly men? What if there are 30? What if there are 20? What if there are 10? And you see Abraham negotiating, if you will, with God. He does it in a godly manner. He doesn't try to deceive. He doesn't try uh, to, 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 to foist falsehoods upon the negotiation. He neither lied nor boasted about his negotiations, but just simply tried to persuade God to spare the city. And so I think Solomon continues to press this point in verse 15 when he says this. He says, there is gold and abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. I think that this is Solomon's way of countering the the, the response. But Solomon, everybody does this. It's, you know, it's, it's so common. Everybody does this. It's okay. This is how you negotiate a deal. This is how business is done. Okay, sure, it's a little deceptive, but it's only a tiny white lie. And yet we should ask ourselves, 
Is sin such a truly inconsequential thing? How bad could it possibly be if we only take just one bite from the forbidden tree? Just one bite off of the piece, a piece of fruit from the forbidden tree. How possibly bad could it be? Another way to state this is, is if sin is a deadly poison, how many drops of the toxin do we want to put in a glass of water? If it's truly toxic and poison to us. You see, if we truly seek God's wisdom in Christ, then we're going to recognize that the wisdom that Solomon showcases here, that even in negotiations, we're supposed to be godly, we're supposed to be wise, we're supposed to be honest, that it is more valuable than gold or precious jewels. Maintaining our God-given, Christ-bought, spirit-applied holiness is worth far more than any business negotiation might ever produce for us. Because what we're doing ultimately is, yes, we may have purchased the product and told some white lies in order to get the price that we wanted, but at what price? At the price of compromising our righteousness, our holiness, and our God-given integrity. When the Apostle Peter described Christ's actions during his sufferings uh, and during his interrogation, we, we read in 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Deception, essentially what Solomon is saying, does not belong upon the lips of the wise. Rather, their lips should be filled with wisdom, with precious jewels and with stones, a wisdom that is more valuable than any of those things. Now, again, we may not realize it, but when we acquire something by deceptive means, no matter how innocuous, mundane, or pedestrian it might seem, we actually will end up paying a much higher price than we realize because it's a price that costs us the holiness of God that has come to us through the gospel in Christ. What about business deals? Which brings us to our second point. Solomon wanders from the marketplace. It's almost like he goes from the marketplace and brings us into the boardroom you know, or into the bank. And he talks about another common form of business in Israel in verse 16. Take a man's garment when he has put up security for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he puts up security for foreigners. Now, this practice may seem strange to us, but it was common in ancient Israel. If you wanted to secure a business deal, let's say that somebody came to you and said, I need to borrow some money, but I don't have anybody to serve as my, the guarantor of my loan. So you say, all right, I'll take off my coat and I'll give you my coat. That is the symbol, that is what is representative of the fact that I will back your deal. So that should you not be able to pay for it, I will pay for the loan. And as a symbol of my my trust, as a symbol of of my commitment to you, I'm going to give you my coat. Because it was symbolic of the giving of the whole person, of the commitment, uh, you know, of the whole person. And so what Solomon says is how utterly foolish it is to give somebody your coat, to act as a guarantor for a stranger, somebody that you don't know. That's very unwise. If you don't know the person's character, how do you know whether or not he's going to repay his debt? 
And I can envision what Solomon is saying is something to the effect that here comes a stranger and the stranger says, well, you serve as my guarantor. And if you promise to be my guarantor, I'll give you without you having to do a thing, without you having to lift a finger, I'll give you 40% of the profits. I know that I'm going to make a lot of money. I'll give you 40% of the profits. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to lift a finger, but just give me your coat as a pledge that you'll be my loan backer. What if he's the deceptive boaster from the market? What if he's going to lie to you, take your money, and then take out, you know, flee out of town, run out of town, run off with your money? This is why Solomon says it's foolish to give your coat as a pledge to a stranger. The Good News Bible, otherwise known as today's English version, states this parable in a powerful way when it says, anyone stupid enough to promise to be responsible for a stranger's debts ought to have his own property held to guarantee payment. He says, why would you do this? You know, the idea here is that there may be the prospect of great financial gain, but it might cost you more than you thought because you're putting your trust in a total and complete stranger. Now, keep in mind, Solomon is not talking about kindness to a stranger. For example, when Boaz, who neither knew uh, uh, Naomi nor Ruth, he didn't know who either of those women were, but he could see that they were in need, he gave them freely of his crops and of his produce and and he fed them and he cared for them and he said here you drink from the cistern here uh you know for the, the, the same as my hired hands uh, and let me care for you that's not what solomon is talking about we of course should be kind to strangers and to people in need but what solomon is saying here is he says don't go into business with a stranger don't give a pledge uh, to a stranger because you don't know their character it's a very foolish thing In other words, what Solomon is saying, he says, there's no free lunch. Don't believe the enticing words of a stranger. Notice what he says there in verse 17. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterwards his mouth will be full of gravel. Well, what Solomon, I think, follows up verse 16 with here in verse 17 is he's basically saying, Bread gained by deceit. In other words, I think that colors our understanding of verse 16. In other words, it's, it's Solomon's advice against seeking easy money. The quick score. The, 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 the fast turnaround investment. And that's why he says bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man. In other words, he says you can't, you can't make money by deception. That's just not the way of wisdom. It is not the way of Christ. How is it that we're supposed to earn our bread in this world? What did, what, what did God tell Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.19? By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Or just a few verses back in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 13, love not sleep lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will have plenty of bread. There's plenty of opportunity for work. Open your eyes and you'll see it, says Solomon but not bread that is gained by deceit. Yes, it may taste good at first bite because you think, look how I was able to deceive my way to success. Twisted the truth a little bit, bent the truth a little bit, got the payday that I was looking for. But Solomon says, 
that sweet bread will eventually turn to a mouth full of gravel. I can remember as a child uh, eating grape nuts. You ever, you ever eat grape nuts? And you think, oh, I need to be healthy, so I'll eat grape nuts. And aside from the fact that it's one of the hardest known substances on the planet, right? I think sometimes you could take a grape nut and cut glass with one of them. Every once in a while, I don't know what it was, but I guess it was a rock or something would get in there and you'd bite down on it and it would just, oh, it would jolt your jaw. I can remember that distinctly. That's what Solomon says here. Tastes sweet at first, but it's just jolting. All of a sudden, what goes to a sweet taste turns into a mouthful of rocks. You might think that deception and fast deals is the path to wealth and success, but Solomon says that the bread obtained by deception only tastes sweet to turn into disaster. Think about Achan. Think about Achan during Israel's uh, quest to uh, conquer the promised land. God told the Israelites, take none of the treasure. It is all forbidden. And so Achan thought that he could get away with increasing his household, uh, you know, financial position by taking some of the treasure. He probably thought nobody's looking, nobody will see, no one will get hurt. You know, this is all laying about. I'll just take a little bit for myself. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man. And yet the sweetness of that bread that Achan took quickly turned into a mouthful of gravel when the conquest of the lands ground to a halt. And then they went house by house and they finally uh, realized by God's revealing it to uh, the leadership, to to Joshua, that it's Achan who took the, the forbidden treasure. And what happened to Achan? He got a mouthful of gravel. He was... He and his family were stoned and burned with fire. You'd want to go back, and I bet you you'd go back and you could ask Achan, was it worth it? And he would say, absolutely not. It was not worth it. And so what Solomon here is saying is is that the the grace of God in Christ needs to permeate the entirety of our life, that there's no untouched corner of our lives, which brings us to our third and final point, which is life. Solomon turns our attention to the big picture when he says in verse 18, plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance, wage war. You know, think about it. Undertaking a war is a significantly uh, big project, to say the least. There's all kinds of details. You know, in, in, in my life, I've done a lot of reading about military history, and they say that the truly brilliant generals don't study tactics uh, so much as they study logistics. In other words, how do you feed the army? How do you clothe the army? How do you get supplies to the army? Because I think it was Napoleon who once said, an army marches on its stomach. If they run out of food... They, they will not be able to, to continue forward in fighting. So you can imagine as you're trying to undertake this and, and look at any major conflict, just getting the equipment to the battlefield these days is a major, massive undertaking. So you can imagine that generals and kings and presidents have to consult a wide range of counselors. Can we do this? 
Do we have the supplies? Do we have the fuel? Do we have the ships, the trains, the planes, and everything that we need? Tell me about our enemy. What kind of defenses do they have? They seek counsel and wisdom from a wide range of counselors. But we have to remember that Solomon here, I think, is not just talking about battle. He's, he's looking to the literal battle that kings go to war. But there's also, you could say, a metaphorical battle that all of us wage. That's the Christian life. You know, why does the Apostle Paul liken the Christian life unto warfare? Because it's, it's, it's basically a battle between good and evil, between uh, Christ and, and our enemy. This is why Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 talks about putting on the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit. And so I think that Solomon takes a step back from the market. He takes a step back from the boardroom where there are negotiations and he looks back at the life as, as, as a whole and he says, life's a battlefield. The Christian life is a battlefield. Seek counselors. Seek wise counselors. One commentator says this, and it's a, it's a uh, quotation from a 17th century Anglican bishop. He says, the, the war of life admits no intermission. It knows no night, no winter. It abides no peace, no truce. It calls us not into garrison where we may have ease and respite, but into pitched fields continually. We see our enemies in the face always and are always seen and assaulted, ever resisting, ever defending, receiving and returning blows. If either we be negligent or weary, we die. What other hope is there while one fights, the other stands still? We can never have safety and peace but in victory. Then must our resistance be courageous and constant when both yielding is death and all treaties of peace mortal. In other words, what he's saying here is he says the Christian life is a continual unceasing battle and the only time that it ends is when Christ returns and the victory is complete. If this is the case, if this is the case, then whether we're talking about the marketplace, whether we're talking about the boardroom, do we surround ourselves with godly counselors, with wise people? Verse 19, he amplifies this point again. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simpler, simple babbler. When you seek counsel, will you seek advice from somebody who, who will reveal your plans to others? who will slander you, who would say, you know, I was talking with uh, so-and-so the other day. You wouldn't believe the half-baked idea he floated by me. And he goes and slanders you. Solomon's point is, be careful whom, from whom you seek counsel. If you're talking to somebody and somebody's bad-mouthing somebody else in front of you, then chances are they'll bad-mouth you when you're not looking. Plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance. Kings wage war. If we receive God's grace in Christ through the Spirit, we should therefore, I think, first and foremost, seek God's counsel through the Word of God, through prayer. To how much prayer do we commit our plans? How much prayer do we invest in the business decisions that we make, in the financial decisions that we make? 
How much time when we're seeking advice about life in general do we talk with the elders of the church, with the deacons, or with the pastor? By seeking godly friends, or at least those who are older and wiser and more experienced than we are, we can gain a lot of wisdom and counsel. It's not just a question of, uh, again, do I want to make money here or am I going to lose money? But rather, am I conducting my business in a God-honoring manner? Am I living out the gospel righteousness of Christ in everything that I say and do? You know, we can seek the advice from somebody who's a godly negotiator and a wise business person. Jesus himself said in Matthew ten sixteen, be as shrewd as a serpent, yet as innocent as a dove. You know, so there's, there's a way to be godly and yet shrewd, we, where we do not have to resort to deception. Moreover, if we seek godly counsel from others and their humble people that we seek counsel from, maybe we can learn from their failings. If they're willing to open up and say, you know what, I was in a similar situation that you're in now, let me tell you how I made some bad choices and hopefully help you try to avoid the same. In his book, Tool of Titans, New York Times bestselling author Tim Ferriss uh, gathers wisdom and insights from more than 100 successful people, captains of industry, musicians, champion athletes, soldiers, entrepreneurs, and authors, and he characterizes this trove of information that he's gathered in this book as standing on the shoulders of giants. Well, that's certainly wisdom for this life. Who are our godly counselors today? Not just for this life, but rather for the Christian life. Who are those godly counselors that we can say, you know what? Whether it's from church history or whether it's from people that are walking around today, here are the list of people that I go to. I go to, say, Charles Spurgeon sometimes. Maybe I go to Jonathan Edwards. Maybe I go uh, to John Calvin. Maybe I go to John Owen. Maybe I, I go to Thomas Boston. Who are our godly counselors? If we were to assemble our own team of titans of the faith to consult for their wisdom, who would we consult? I think we should think about such things because those to whom we turn for counsel will either point us towards Christ or away from Christ. I think one of the points of Solomon's uh, Proverbs here is that God's wisdom in Christ should permeate the entirety of our lives. There's a famous statement that Abraham Kuyper said uh, long ago, or at least 150 years or so ago, where he said there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which uh, Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. And I think it's, it's, it's a powerful statement, and, and it's debatable as to what Kuiper meant in terms of, does, does, it mean, does it mean that he wants us to kind of Christianize the world and take it over? That's debatable. But I know this much. So often it's the case that we want to say, yes, we want Christ to take over the world, but maybe we're not as eager for him to take over the entirety of our lives. We're not so willing to say, yes, Lord, every square inch of my life is yours. Every square inch of life is yours. This statement, of course, I think should be true of our lives. Every square inch of our lives should exude the wisdom of Christ. In this case, the way we negotiate business, the way we pursue our business deals, the counsel that we keep. But remember this. And I trust and pray that this has not been lost at all in this message, is that we cannot create this wisdom ourselves. 
This is a wisdom that only comes by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It only comes to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so by God's grace, we should seek his wisdom through prayer and through the means of grace. This way, our Christ-bought, spirit-applied redemption would not be a Sunday thing or a sometimes thing, but a a seven-day, 24-hour-a-week thing, whether in the boardroom, whether in the marketplace, when we are lying asleep at night and we are dreaming. Does our sanctification extend even into our dreams? That not a square inch in the whole domain of our spiritual walk with Christ would be, uh, would be absent of his wisdom so that we could bring glory to our triune God in all that we think, say, and do, whether in things small or great. That, beloved, should be our hope, not only for the future, but at least for this year. Maybe set that as a goal as we see the new year approaching, that we would say, Lord, that your son's holiness would permeate every square inch of my life. May it be so, and may we do so to the glory of God in Christ alone. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful for your all-powerful saving grace. We are grateful that you indeed seek to save us, and not just a portion of us, but the entirety of our lives, body and soul, bone and marrow, soul and spirit. We pray, O Lord, that this would be our chief desire, especially as we prepare to cross the threshold of this uh, new year. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to renew our commitment to you, that our desire would be to glorify you in everything that we say or do, that we would not try to reserve any part of our lives for ourselves, that we would not try to reserve any part of our lives to the common sinful ways of the world, where we would look to excuse our actions by saying, hey, everybody else does it, why not me? Well, Father, we pray that you would grant unto, this, unto us this holiness, the holiness of Christ by your grace. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would even give us the courage because sometimes, O oh Lord, when you call us to holiness, the world will reject us. Uh, the world will ridicule us. But we pray, O oh Lord, that in those moments you would give, us, give unto us courage, that we would be lights shining in a dark world, and that we would desire above all else to bring glory to your name whether in things great or in things small. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.